So you like bold red wine most of the time With notes of fig and raisin You like a cold brew and pitching horseshoes As the sun is fading You like football games and dishing out nicknames The Godfather's one and two But not so fast, we got a podcast We like that too we like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. Hey, Bon Vivants, welcome back to the We Like That Too podcast. I'm Brad Jones coming to you from the Bon Vivant International Media Center with, of course, the head Bon Vivant, Mr. Keith Inloo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. So we're not going to mess around. We're going, no. we're going right. Right to the booze. We're doing something a little different today because we're waiting for an, a remote guest to call in. And we thought while well, we'd be waiting, since they're not going to imbibe with us anyway, they, they don't have the bottle and they're not uh, wine drinkers. We're going to go ahead and do the wine review, the one bottle now, and then we will bring them into the show after they call in. Great. So let's get into it. And what we have gorgeous today wine. I, is, don't, I haven't tasted it yet, but wow. Well, and it should be because yeah. it's uh, it's been practicing for a long time. This is one of the great, and I'm not going to go into the whole thing, Keith, but I encourage. What's like the history very, of wine? Oh, my gosh. And, you know, here's the thing. This is a dry Riesling. We've had a dry Riesling on the show from the Weimer family. Yeah, we've, but and, they, they're few and far between. They're hard to find, first of all. Yeah. Well, we get these from Matt Green, yes. downtown Jefferson City, Beautiful. Bar Vino. Yes, that's right. But it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, uh, the two families. This is Dr. Constantine Frank. And Dr. Frank is like the man in the United States for Venefra grapes. Okay. He is actually the one who started started the Venefra revolution and he's got an incredible story. He actually got his viniculture PhD in Ukraine. Okay. And grew up in Ukraine, but you know the man lived through two world wars. So you sure it's not Konstantin Frank? It's Konstantin Frankenstein. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, sorry, yeah. I couldn't. So help anyway, it. yeah, but he uh, he got his degree in Odessa, Ukraine, and he had you know uh, World War One and World War Two, and then he they're Russian, and so being well, <laughs> we're fighting about that now, aren't well, we? But he was in Ukraine. He's but, Ukrainian. But when yeah. the uh, when the uh, the Russian Revolution took place. Uh, they sort of made him do what they were going to do, and that's start a wine program in Ukraine. Okay. Uh, he got out of there and went to Austria and was in Austria for a while. That's and then, where he got his chops with this because I can't wait to taste this wine. And, My goodness. And then they they just decided, well, we're leaving. We're going to the United States, and we're going to do something else. He didn't have, you know, kind of like the Weimers, he didn't have a nickel in his pocket, and but he had a Ph.D., and he was older. He was in his 50s. Yeah. So he had 30 years of incredible knowledge about soils and all those things. And so he had a couple of, of, of other wine-related jobs up in uh, 
up in the northeast, and they settled in the Finger Lakes area. Okay, so this is one, and you had a reason for doing this, because you've got a trip planned to the Finger Lakes area, right? We are. We are going to finally do it. Brendan and I are going to northern uh, New York, the northern part of New York, and we're going to go down through Seneca, and we're going to be very close to uh, the Weimar Winery, and I'm thinking after after doing the research, I definitely want to go to Dr. Frank's. Yeah. So you're doing a little pre-search is what you're doing. I'm doing some pre-search. And when you said – it was really funny that you said, why don't we do a dry Riesling? And I was like, perfect, because Matt's got two or three of them all from the Finger Lakes area, and this was one that I wanted to try anyways. Well, this, so, is, this is gorgeous. First of all, is, let's talk about what we see in the glass. I mean – It is gold. It's a, light, it's a light gold. It's not a dark Chardonnay no, gold. It's, it's a white gold, but it's gorgeous wine. It's, it's just very, beautiful in the very, glass. Very, very pretty. Um What's what's the alcohol content on this? I'm going to guess low. It's it's pretty low, I think. I don't I don't know. So our friend Matt Green down at uh, Barvino in beautiful downtown Jefferson City, when he he kind of was the one that turned me on to dry rieslings. He told me that you can tell a dry riesling, a good dry riesling, by on the nose you will get hints of petrol, petroleum, turpentine, and it sounds terrible, but this is a beautiful balance of that petroleum nose, but it's got great fruit on it, too. I get I green apple. Smell. Yeah. I get kind of a, a green apple-ish. Yeah. Uh, green grapes. Yeah. But there's that acidity. And that petroleum is that acidity and minerality that you associate with a good dry Riesling, especially in old world. This is delicious. I really like this one. Uh, 16 bucks. <laughs> what? Yeah. $16. Oh, now this is, this is very good. This is lighter than I would have... Um, thought from the nose green apples on the palate for sure yeah uh, a little bit of pear mm-hmm. yeah but i want i want all you bon vivants to go to uh, just google constantine frank wine and look at their website they've got a fantastic website but read the history of the frank family it is fascinating it's it's pretty long it goes back uh well, they've been doing Const- a long time yeah. constantine's mom and dad and i mean it goes all the way back to the old country and them coming over here and uh i can't believe this is a 16 dollar bottle of wine yeah i know usually you don't associate a white wine with much tannin I'm getting some tannin off of this. 12%. Yeah, so, low alcohol. I figured that. Very good. I'm not, get, I'm I'm not a, really getting too much tannin on I, it. I, I feel it up in, uh, along the sides of my teeth, up on the upper part of my mouth. A little bit. Dr. Constantine Frank. You, the other thing that he did, he was very, very generous with helping some of the vineyards in Long Island and in okay. that area and, right. and other areas because – he was kind of a stubborn old Russian. He's the one that said, we can grow vinifera grapes in the United States because yeah. I did it in Russia with weather that is actually colder than it is here. Yeah. Um, yeah. He came up with some techniques and, and whatnot for uh, plows that they could they could plow down deeper and they could plant a little bit deeper mm-hmm. to keep those keep those Below plants. the frost line maybe. Yeah, yeah. keep those yeah. keep those things the warm, warm. So that, yeah nice this guy would make a movie it is unbelievable this the pedigree this guy has and yes, the family so dr constantine frank dry riesling from the finger lakes region of new york check it out bon vivants and we thank uh, matt green barvino our wine sponsor you know we got to thank another sponsor too and that is uh, Missouri River Regional Library. You know, if if you want to go learn about Dr. Frank 
and uh, the history of wine and anywhere. Check out your local library. Um, They've got so many different programs now, and I know we talk about a lot of them on the podcast, uh, the book box that you can pre-order books. They've got the online movies and music that you can download with a library card. They've got one-on-one technical help for those kind of issues. It's kind of like uh, we can't even describe everything that the library can do for you. It is such a resource center nowadays and uh, always supportive of the arts and those kind of things. So check out your local library. We want to thank Missouri River Regional Library for sponsoring the podcast. And uh, Thank you all very, very much. And uh, we have a very special guest today. And he's called in. And, and he's so, called uh, in. He's on. We are excited to talk about this guy, uh, a professional actor, comedian, writer. He's got his uh, thumbs in a lot of different pies. <laughs> so joining us remotely from the Big Apple is Connor Ratliff. Now, here's a little background on Connor. I've known Connor since he was a young man, very young man. Um, we've actually worked on stage together when he was very young, uh, community theater back here in Jefferson City. But Connor is in New York now. And welcome, first of all, welcome, Connor. Thank you for joining oh, us. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm not sure how to describe you, Connor, other than you are a, a man of many talents. You've got your, you've got your dipper in a lot of different buckets. You are an actor, but you're much more than that. You're a writer, a producer. You do a lot of different things. How would, you, what, what do you call yourself on your resume? Uh, I usually say actor comedian. There you go. Um, cause the comedian cover, I fear that covers everything that isn't acting, even though a lot of the acting is comedy. Sure, sure. Well, and you're writing a lot of stuff too, aren't you? I mean, you, you, you've got a lot of different projects going and, uh, and yeah, doing a little... I, I, I sort of, to avoid having, I guess if I really have to add a triple hyphen it, I'll say podcaster, cause then that's the one thing that sounds sort of, uh, respectably business-like in a way. Oh, good. Um, well, we well, can consider ourselves respectable We've now. never That's considered good. ourselves respectable. So <laughs> well, a, we're going to talk about that. You certainly have a very respectable podcast uh, uh, out there. Uh, and, well, <laughs> if you say you're a podcaster, if you say you're an actor and a comedian, it, you could say that and not get any work, and people are like, well, have you managed to do anything? You know, there are a lot of aspirational People who want to be an actor call themselves an actor, but you might not have worked in a year or two or whatever. Yeah. If you say you're a podcaster, most people will believe you that you have made an episode of a podcast. Well, um, you and two million yeah. other people. And here's yeah. the deal. When, when I went to the convention, you tell people, yeah, we're starting our second year. They look at you like – Whoa! You're you're, um, made it you're, that um, long? you're amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're climbing up with this episode, Connor, on about seventy episodes. Yeah. So yeah. they look at you like, you know, you guys have actually produced something, and it's 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 kind of funny to hear fun. the reaction of people because they get it. You know, when when half of them, you know, end after the first show, <laughs> right? Yeah, you feel pretty, of, you feel kind of good about yourself when you don't done, make it. They don't make it. Yeah, like this is. Like like work. Well, well, Connor, let's kind of start at the very beginning, as uh, Maria would say with the Von Trapp children. Um, how did you get from, I mean, I know you always had a passion for performing and a passion for for the theater arts and that kind of thing, but how, you know, what took you from Jeff City to where you are now? Kind of give us a, a synopsis of your career path and what led you to what you're doing right now. Well, I mean, both of my parents, um, my, my dad had, had been an actor and an improviser um, when he was younger. Um, and then my mom did a lot of community theater when I was growing up when my dad was uh, on TV 
hosting a kid show and being the weatherman. So I was, I was used to having, you know, both of my parents, you know, seeing them perform a lot. It, it seemed like a natural thing to do. Yeah. When I was for the, probably the first 10 years, uh, where I had any notion of what I wanted to be when I grew up, I think I wanted to be a, an animator or a cartoonist more than anything. And then there was a point where I think, um, when I started doing plays in Jeff city, uh, I kind of, that kind of scratched the same itch, but it also was social in a way that being a cartoonist very much isn't, you know, Uh being a cartoonist is very, uh, isolating and and can be very lonely. And I remember having a thought when I was drawing, I always enjoyed drawing cartoons. And I remember there was a point where I thought, what if I, got to a point where I had to do this and I didn't want to. And I thought, Oh, that would be really miserable to have to draw and, and not know if I ever lost the spark for it. And so that sort of faded away because getting better at acting was something that felt uh, exciting to me. And I, I kind of just thought, well, well, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I like doing it more. And I sort of couldn't imagine reaching a point where I didn't like it. Before my senior year of high school, I had gone out and auditioned at Mizzou for their professional summer rep. I got cast in the lead role in a production of Ordinary People. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great show. So that was my summer job was being the lead in a play. So I did that play and then they reprised it when one of the actors couldn't be in the play for those two weeks and they cast a a senior at Mizzou who was John Hamm. Oh, we've heard of of him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's done well. Yeah. So I got a scholarship, an acting scholarship at Mizzou, and I I did two years there. And in the second year, I couldn't get cast in anything, even though I was required by my scholarship to audition for every play. There was a play that had like over 20 parts for men in it. Directed by a professor who had given me an A in a in a an acting class that year, and I inexplicably like didn't get cast in that play. And I remember thinking, I got to go somewhere else. This is for whatever reason. I never got an answer, but I was like, I got to get out of here. I got to find some place that's a better fit for me. And so I happened upon this thing in USA Today. I actually just stumbled across this, and it was a little item in the life section of USA Today. It was a picture of Paul McCartney. And it was saying Paul McCartney is opening up a fame school in Liverpool, England. And it's basically his old school where he met George Harrison as a kid basically was just a big abandoned building. And he didn't like seeing that this really beautiful old building had fallen into, you know, disrepair. Mm -hmm. So he said, let's turn this into a performing arts academy. And he put in, you know, millions of pounds of his own money, raised a bunch of money, and they turned it into a school that was basically like a vocational school for show business. So whereas, you know, when you, when you go to a, you know, an American university that has just a regular theater department, you know, you do a bunch of plays, you do, you know, a Chekhov play, you do a, you know, you do a couple of modern plays, you do a musical, you do whatever, but you don't really learn a lot of the things that a professional actor does to start or maintain their career you're learning about like sort of the art of it and a little bit of the craft of it but not actually any of the the um, business not the business of it and so yeah well i had auditioned to get to the school they had they held auditions in new york so i i got an audition came to new york did the audition got accepted in the school 
And then I did a three-year degree in Liverpool. And it was a school that basically you did all the things that you would do under a normal theater degree, but you also had classes in like enterprise management and contextual studies. And there were all these areas that were sort of about figuring out, well, when you're done here, because it was a school for musicians, actors, dancers, but also, you know, if you want to be an entertainment manager, if you want to be a producer, they had dedicated courses for like all of the different disciplines and you would work within with uh, people in those disciplines. So you'd like put together a project and you'd get uh, someone who wanted to be a producer to help you produce your project. So I did that for three years in England and then started by, you know, I went and basically my strategy was I knew if I was part of the first graduating class, my theory, which turned out to be correct is if they don't get working professionals out of their first graduating class, it will sink the school. So they're going to work <laughs> extra hard because they have to be able to yeah, prove yeah, that they can boy. do it. They got to justify so, it. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened, which is they had a showcase in London for agents and managers. And that's so I got an agent right out of drama school off of the showcase. There was there were dozens of managers and agents there. One of them was interested in me. And they signed me, and then I started getting auditions in London nice. right away. And we will um, get into that London story a little later because that's a big part yeah. of what uh, what you did <laughs> in the last couple of years. But uh, so, what, what got you to New York then? Uh, back well, back to the states. Basically, my London career started strong, and then it sort of fizzled. You know, you start out doing something when you're a kid because it's fun, and then you decide, well, maybe I want to do it for a living. So you go and you study it. And studying it is a little bit less fun. You still want to do it. And then you start doing it professionally. And with each step, it gets further away from the thing that you liked about it. Yeah. So I got to a point where I took a break from acting because I just wasn't enjoying it. I was auditioning for things that I didn't want to do and then not getting them. So it was sort of bad in every direction. Like I'd audition for a play that I thought, this play is really bad. I don't want to get it. But then I wouldn't get it. And then I'm like, well, now I don't have a job. And, <laughs> sort of like you know, salt in the wound. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I basically spent the better part of the decade not pursuing being an actor. Yeah. Then there was a point where I had seen a couple of friends and, and people doing shows at a place called the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York. And I liked the vibe of the place. So I, I first remember asking, like, well, what's, what's this place? How do people get to perform here? And they're like, oh, well, you take classes. And then I was like, never mind. I don't, I don't want to. That sounds like a scam. I don't want to take classes. I'm done taking classes, you know. And then I saw enough things there that I thought maybe I'll my, – my parents basically encouraged me to, like, take a class. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. most people – who take improv classes don't know how to explain to their parents what they're doing. I had two parents who were saying, Amy Poehler has a theater in New York. You should take classes. And they were actively trying. And I was like, I don't know. So so let's tell the Bon Vivants out there what the Upright Citizens Brigade is, because it is a highly known, reputable improv acting troupe. And drop some names, Connor. I mean, don't be afraid to, to let us know who you were working with, who you were learning with yeah, and, well, and cutting your chops. The original, it started off the UCB4, as they called them. They had a show on Comedy Central in the 90s. Amy Poehler, Matt Besser, Ian Roberts, and uh, Matt Walsh. Four very talented improvisers and sketch comedians. Initially, it was like they started teaching classes 
and then putting on shows and then they had their own theater and then they had multiple theaters. And by the time I jumped onto the scene, there were so many people, Jason Manzoukas, Ben Schwartz, Lennon Parham. There were so many, it was basically just like a talent factory of so many people um, go through UCB and then end up on TV, right. on Saturday Night Live, things like that. I was about 10 years older than most of the people. Most people t- take start taking improv classes are probably in their early 20s is sort of the average. And I was 33 by the time I started taking them. And so I was about a decade older than like my peer group in the classes. You but could play all the character meant, roles then, right? Well, it, it, it basically <laughs> meant that I wasn't nervous doing improv. Yeah. Um, like other people were nervous they were going to look silly, but I was already at an age where I'm like, I don't care about that. And so I had kind of a, a, a fast rise, but it was also probably, you know, the most intense two years of just working. I, I don't think I've ever worked as hard at anything. It wasn't working at being funny. Like I remember in my first improv class realizing you're either funny or you're not. This is not learning how to be funny. This is learning how to do a very specific kind of thing, which is performing where you're both acting and writing at the same time. But more importantly, you're collaborating. And that's what ultimately leads me back to being an actor again, is that eventually I did so much stuff at UCB that I started getting cast and stuff. Nice. And that sort of circled me back. I was not looking to be an actor again. Hey, Connor. Yeah. Real quick question. Do any of the folks from, like from Second City that just want to be in New York, do, do they switch over from Second City to to this group then? Or is that just a dumb oh, question? Oh, yeah. There, there's a lot of I, – I, whatever tribalism there is in improv as far as theaters, everybody goes everywhere at this point. Now, like I have performed with a lot of people who got their start in Second City. I know Second City I think is, is getting ready to open up in New York, which is something that's been like a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, like a lot of people who – come from Chicago to New York will then seek out UCB and be like, Oh, I want to do shows. And I, I have a lot of people that I've done improv with who the first 10 years of their improv career was at second city, but now they're in New York. So they do, a, they would be doing UCB stuff, you know? Huh. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your, some of the projects that I know you've worked on. The fun part is once in a while, uh, I'll be watching something and all of a sudden, You'll pop up on it. It's like, ah, there's Connor. And I never know it's coming. But um, some of the stuff that you see, especially these, um, well, I've, I found them on YouTube. I'm not sure how they were distributed prior to their arrival on YouTube. But things like, uh, just to name a few, the Dollar Store Therapist is one mm-hmm. of my favorites. Uh, tell us about, first of all, describe your sense of humor, because I think it's, if you watch the Dollar Store Therapist, and I encourage everyone to go Google and YouTube dollar store therapist. Um, yeah. Dollar describe store your therapist. sense of, your, of humor because it's unique. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I would think it's mostly behavioral. It's, it's mostly about um, the things that I tend to think are funny. Usually I, if I had to pick a theme, it's all related to the themes of success and failure. I think those are the primary engines of my comedy because I think um, striving to be successful is inherently very funny and failure of course is funny because I mean, like even at a very basic, at a very basic level, like when you're trying to make a two year old laugh, act like something's happening and you don't want it to be happening, you know, no, don't do that or something. It will, it makes us laugh to see people not getting what they want, you know, or trying something and it not working out, you know, the like a pratfall or a pie in the face. These are all things that are like, you know, 
the form is built on, you know, trying to succeed and, uh, the trying is funny. And, and often the trying is, is more funny than the failure. The yeah. failure is just the, yeah. the button on it. And so Dollars for Therapist was this comedy central digital series that basically when comedy things are happening in New York, people are aware of like who's on the scene. And I believe that was something where they just reached out and they're like, we have this digital series that we're doing and we'd love you to do it. And they had written these scripts that were sort of like uh, templates. It, it wasn't like I didn't create the series or anything. Oh, okay. but, if, if you, but if you watch the series, I was fairly proud of the fact that a lot of the whatever we would start out with, which was written by someone else, I would do so much improv that very often, sometimes the entire uh, episode would be just pulling from the improv. Right. Or like the the setup would be the script, but the, like the first twenty to thirty seconds of it would be the script, and then the rest of it would be all from the improvised takes. And the episodes, because, the episodes yeah. seem very improvisational, very organic, and and. Bon vivant Caesar, you know, if you talk, it's not going to take a lot of your time. Each episode probably lasts, what, less than a minute and a half, two minutes? They're yeah, short. Yeah, they're all very short. They're really short, and they're fun to watch. So if you need a good laugh in your day, check that one out. There were a couple others that Brad and I were talking about. Brad, what, what else were you? The, the one that I'm interested in a, a little bit, Connor, is I, I don't know if this was your first foray into film or not, but uh, living in Missouri, you did in 2001, so it goes back a little ways, but Holmes Osborne was in that. And, yeah. uh, he's a Kansas City guy, right? Yeah. He's, he, well, I'm going to talk about him a little later. Yeah, we'll pull Spoiler, him up a little later. Spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about living in Missouri a little bit. So much of being an actor is waiting around, um, to get an audition for someone else to let you be in a thing or not. And I was determined that I was going to, not just wait for other opportunities to happen, but that I would try to make opportunities for myself. The, t the title, uh, as I had written it, it was called Best Renters. And it's about two best friends, basically two childhood friends who are now adults and they're basically the worst thing for each other. It's grown into like a toxic friendship. And it was specifically about um, kind of a, not just toxic friendship, but the character that I wrote for myself was this, toxic star wars fan um which at the time was the thing i was observing that i was seeing a lot of star wars fans who were very aggressive and angry in the early days of the internet whatever joy they had gotten out of being a star wars fan as a child had curdled into this sort of aggressive misanthropy <laughs> as adults and this phenomenon has only gotten worse uh in the in the the decades to follow but so we made this film for what was on the one by by movie standards a very low budget by my life standard it was a disaster. Is it something that you can look back on and laugh now, or is it still a painful? Not really, uh... I, I I can understand why anyone else would. It was such an unhappy experience making it. The movie was getting ready to shoot, and Sean uh, had a connection. That Holmes Osborne, who's from Kansas City, um, and we had just seen him in a bunch of things. He'd been in the movie That Thing You Do right. that Tom Hanks uh, wrote and directed. Right. So Bob Vivant, part of that. Yeah. Holmes Osborne in the movie That Thing You Do plays the father of the drummer who owns the hardware store, who's in competition with the new big box store across the street. One of my favorite lines in the whole movie. 
I don't believe I want to live in a country where you have to stay open on a Sunday to stay in business. I love that line. <laughs> That's a good performance. Oh, and, great and, we were, and we were like, he's going to be home in Kansas City for a weekend over Thanksgiving. We can film with him for two days in Kansas City, and he'll do it. We wrote a character that would basically be self-contained. It would just be filmed in one room. Mm-hmm. We went up and filmed with Holmes, and we improvised a lot of really funny stuff. And that was really fun. Especially because one thing, and this was years before I would actually learn how to do improv, but I didn't want to improvise a bunch of stuff that would um, take away time from what Holmes was improvising, that I just did a lot of listening and agreeing. I was basically just like, he's going to do all the talking, and I'm going to I'm gonna be the guy who just sort of worships him. Yeah. I don't need to be funny in these scenes. I will just listen and react, which ended up being, I think, very helpful in the editing because I, I wasn't going off and trying to, like, steal the scene back from him. I was just like, let's let Holmes really shine in these scenes. And he's very funny in them. Yeah. It took about a year to get to edit the film. And then we spent another year submitting it to festivals and getting rejected. Script advice guy said two things. One is you need a different title. Best renters is a bad title. The other advice we got right before filming was you should have a big star in your movie, like Tom Cruise or somebody. <laughs> yeah, fine. No problem. Which is, which is sort of like telling someone, giving someone advice to, by telling them to be a millionaire. Yeah. Um, that's good advice. You know what would help you if you had millions of dollars? Um, that's my advice. To oh, you. you should have millions of dollars. Yeah. You could give them to someone. They'd be in your movie. Well, let's look back in. Speaking of leading to something, let's look back in. One of the real reasons we want to talk to you about is the podcast that you did. And Holmes Osborne plays into that one one episode. It was a great episode. But Bon Vivants, if you have not listened to the podcast Dead Eyes, you need to. It comes with the highest recommendation. It is an experience. I will tell you. It is a a great story. It is a journey that actually, and I'm going to let Connor, but it has kind of a beginning and a middle and an end. And a very cool end. (laughs) The the most amazing end uh, you'll you'll ever hear. So, Connor, give us the short version of how what set up the podcast idea. I'm I'm in New York. I'm a working actor. Every now and then I get invited into various podcast networks and they would say, um, do you have any ideas for podcasts? And I would pitch a few things. And there was one idea I always had because from the moment I started doing improv, you know, people will, you know, they'll, they'll meet you in a class or at a show or something. And then they'll start talking and they'll ask, so what did you do before you were here? And I say, well, I used to be an actor. And then say, well, what do you mean you used to? And I would say, well, I went to drama school in England, and then I was I worked as an actor for a few years in London. And there was a point where, right when I was sort of on the cusp of thinking, I don't like this anymore, I might want to give this up. I got an audition for Band of Brothers, the HBO miniseries produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks in the wake of their great success with Saving Private Ryan, mm-hmm. the movie. And this was going to be the biggest TV miniseries. At the time, it was the biggest TV miniseries that had ever been attempted. I went and auditioned for it, and and they were casting all the little parts. All the main parts had been cast, but now in England, they were casting all the characters who come in and say a few lines and leave. And because they want them to be local. If they, if they fly you in, they have to put you up in a hotel. They have to find you a place to live and all this. They have to feed you. If you're a local hire, they, they assume you drive home at the end of the day. They don't need to pay for your house, you know. Because my mom 
uh, was born in Ireland. I have Irish citizenship, which meant I could continue working in England after I graduated from uh, the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts. I, I was going up against all these British actors to play American, little American parts. So they're all having to put on the accent. I'm able to come in, just do the part and be relaxed and just say, yes, sir, no, sir. And I just sound like an American. I do a, I go and audition. I do a callback. I think I might have done a third callback. And then I get to a point where they say they want you to come back in. There's a speaking part that's in two episodes, and they're only looking at you for this. I went in, I auditioned for what I was told are, there's there's uh, the, the execs from HBO are here, the execs from Amblin are here, like all, Tom's execs are here, all all of the big wig uh, people are in the room looking at this. And then I book this part. The part is Private Zelinsky. He is the... Um, Interesting last name. Yeah. Yes. Now, of course, with the <laughs> war in Ukraine, that has become a very, very popular yeah. uh, name in the news. Um, but basically, Damien Lewis is one of the main characters in the show. There's a part where he gets promoted, and then he has this young private who now basically he's an officer. He has this private who gets him coffee, fetches the, whatever papers he needs, etc. And it's basically a functional character who's there to demonstrate that he's no longer on the front lines. He kind of has a, he has basically what's the, the military equivalent of like a, an assistant or a butler or something. Yeah. Aide de camp. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm very excited about this. And then I find out more good news, which is that episode five, when my character first appears is going to be directed by Tom Hanks. So I'm very excited about this. One of the reasons I'm excited is that a few months earlier we, we had filmed living in Missouri and I had filmed for two days with Holmes Osborne, who goes way back with Tom Hanks. They are old friends. And when Tom was starting out as an actor, they did Shakespeare productions together. Tom cast him in that thing you do. So it's all very exciting. Now I have something to talk with Tom Hanks about when we're on the set and he's directing me. Here's where we get to the premise of the podcast, really, is the day before I'm supposed to start filming my scenes, I get a frantic call from my agent's office. And my agent's assistant says, you have to get to Hatfield right away. I said, yeah, I'm heading there later this afternoon. He said, no, no, you have to go now. Tom Hanks has looked at your audition tape and he's having second thoughts. He thinks you have dead eyes. Dead eyes is the name of the podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, Connor, but it is, it's, it is funny. I mean, it is a, it is a very funny sentence to have been. Yeah. I'm sure it was, it's tragic. And, And you know, that's part of the, that's part of the attraction of the podcast itself is you had an innate ability to draw in the listener to feel the discomfort, the pain, the, the disappointment, the rejection. But at the same time, it's like you're kind of, chuckling in the background that this is because i think because the time that's gone by you know you're you're doing the podcast you're you're so removed uh chronologically from when the event actually happened i think even you in a couple episodes admitted that you look back on it differently of course than when you were going through it but bon vivants it is this journey of connor trying to track down what really happened what the hell are Dead eyes. And, some and, of you, these and, episodes, and all the people you talked to, oh my Connor. Gosh, I don't know how. Some of these episodes that you came up with, I'm like, how did he think to go down that rabbit hole? <laughs> I mean, you you are talking to people that even have the slightest connection or people who've worked with you in the past. And you're asking them, do you have dead eyes? And and what does dead eyes even mean? How do you define it? It is it's brilliant. I mean, it's I could not wait 
to get to the next episode. And, and uh, so, first of all, congratulations on a great podcast. Thank you. Well, it was very, it was very fun to work on. And basically, for those, uh, just to cap off for those who don't know, I end up re-auditing for Tom Hanks, and I'm fired immediately from the part. And the podcast is me trying to investigate that as if it's a real mystery. Yeah. What really happened? Yeah. What went wrong? What are dead eyes? And it goes down a lot of, as you said, a lot of cul-de-sacs, a lot of tangents, a lot of left turns rather yeah. than just going from A to B to C. Well, the ultimate goal all along, though, I think, you, and the, another brilliant aspect of the podcast is all along, I think the listeners are right with you. It's like, can we ever get an answer from the guy himself? Yeah. It's sort of like a, it's sort of like a parallel train rail that's running alongside this story is like, can we ever get over here and touch this rail where we're going to get to talk to the guy himself? And you, you even are shy about admitting that that's kind of your goal, but we all kind of are pulling for it and we know about it. Now, I don't want to, I'll leave it up to you whether you disclose what happens or not. I, I'm not going to spoil what happens in the episode, but I th I'm no longer keeping the secret that if you listen through, and I do think it's best to try to listen through to, um, as much of the first three seasons as possible before you get to the episode 31, which is my conversation with Tom Hanks. Right. Because I think there are a lot of things, including Holmes Osborne, which pay off in <laughs> yes. surprising yeah. ways. Yes. Um, in the conversation, the build, um, the build up is what makes it great. I know, it is, you know, it really is. It's uh, if you're writing a script, you don't you you don't disclose the ending in the middle of the thing. And this was a, a, a great film noir sort of yeah, <laughs> sort of was, story. It was brilliant. It was actually brilliant. It, it, there's actually there's an interesting sort of um, currently kind of an interesting addendum to the podcast, which. I just received in the mail today the physical C CD audiobook of Tom Hanks's new novel, which is called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece. Which that's um, how appropriate. <laughs> it, it is. This is his. This is his first novel. He had published a book of short stories a few years back, and this is a novel, a fictionalized account of making a movie that he is pulling from his entire career's worth of experiences on movie sets. He's basically everything that happens in the book has a direct inspiration of something he's experienced in his uh, career as an actor and a producer and a writer and a director. And the fun, one of the fun things about it for me is that if this book had come out before I had spoken to Tom Hanks, we would have done a Rosetta Stone style, like a Da Vinci Code episode, unpacking like what are all these clues. I was I received a message from an editor at uh, uh, Penguin Random House, um, offering me uh, a role in the audiobook. So I am one of the wow. cast of this audiobook. That's nice. cool. Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks is the main. He reads most of it, but there are certain parts in it. I'm gonna hold on. I have a copy of it here. Let me. Um, I'm going to find the section because well, there is a, a reading by Connor Ratliff. This a live is reading. A live reading. Recorded live. Yes. I, I genuinely, at the time, I was like, was this written before or during or at what point in the in the process of me doing the podcast? Uh, and I now think it probably was because I believe he wrote this novel during pandemic 
Mm-hmm. So I think this was in some way percolating in his mind. Um, I'll find it here. I'm flipping through. It's a very long book. And it's out there right now. It is out there. The audiobook is on Audible. You can okay. hear me in the, in the audio version of it. Um, and. But for the, future reference, dog ear that page. <laughs> <laughs> if it were me, Connor, I'd have that sucker highlighted big time. Yes. Okay. Okay. So there is a, a, an actor in the novel who um, is called OKB for short. He's like, he's got, it goes by OKB. And uh, the director uh, is, uh, is named Bill. And it said, here's the section. It says, if there was any knock Bill had against the choice, uh, the, that's the choice to cast OKB in this main role in the movie, it was in OKB's eyes, dark eyes, there was a moment in the screenplay in Bill's head when Firefall's eyes are seen for the first time and they need to seem vulnerable. Firefall had to be vulnerable. Could dark eyes be vulnerable? And this actor ends up getting fired. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think this is a coincidence, nah, Connor. That's, I'm that's just... a little too close to the truth. Yeah. The, role, the role that I read in the audiobook is the actor who replaces the fired actor, which is a fun little bit of meta. That's a nice uh, yeah. That's a yeah. bit of irony. <laughs> and, and all my interactions, I've had a few interactions with Tom since our conversation um, on the podcast, and they have all been effortlessly exactly what you would like. If my initial interaction with Tom Hanks being, he fires me. Is sort of the low, the lowest possible. Short of him, I don't know, punching me or something. I think I would have preferred to be punched than fired. Um, but every interaction I've had with him since our conversation has been so kind and thoughtful and delightful in all the ways that you. Everybody who wants to have an interaction with Tom Hanks, that the, the kind that you dream of, that is what they've been. Okay. Uh, he's been. I've gotten a couple of notes from him. They've all been very. Very thoughtful. At one point, I, I sent him an email when the when the um, when the episode came out, thanking him again for doing it, and he responded with a lovely email. And then about an hour later, I got another email from him that said, "Who wrote the copy for that Manscaped ad?" Because I had done an uh, the the ads on Headgum, the the podcast network that Dead Eyes is on, are all host read ads. So if if you if right. they sell an ad, the host reads the ad. Right. And so uh, I had done one a, a series of them for this male grooming company, and I don't use their products. So I was like, well, how do I make this personal? If I don't use their I don't use their products. And so we decided to make the ad just be a series of um, sort of male grooming. Some of them slightly off color, almost uh, wordplay off of uh, Tom Hanks' titles. So. Um, <laughs> when I got the email saying who wrote the copy for that Manscaped ad, I genuinely thought, "Oh no, is it possible that I've gone too far?" And I now he has heard that I'm in the shit with him again. Oh no, that, that I'm that I that he's listening to an ad where I literally take almost every title in his filmography and make rem- some sort of ball. I ball remember that ad. Yeah. All the, all the, the thing about there'll the be no yeah, more shaving privates crying. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's yeah. a lot of, 
but so I was like, I, I got this email. I was like, oh no, like I, I, I've made him, I've offended him. And I said, I, I had to figure out a way to respond that would work if he was mad at me, but it would also work if he liked it. And so I just wrote back, I must confess it was me. And then I waited for another few minutes. Then he wrote back and he said, brilliant in every way. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, it was just like, you know, oh. you want to make Tom Hanks laugh. But well, you answered of- one of my questions, though, and that was yeah. Tom Hanks. You know, I, I I love Tom Hanks. I think he's probably the best working actor alive today. And so you've answered my question. He is a nice guy. Yes. And yeah, that's good. And, you know, um, more interesting than just a nice guy. Part got, of the reason yeah. that, that we like Tom Hanks is people often forget Tom Hanks is maybe maybe the best screamer in the history of movie comedy. Like. When you think of like, well, who's funny who screams in comedies? And you think of screaming, maybe you think of Sam Kinison, but that's just one. <laughs> Sam Kinison screamed Sam one Sam. way. Yeah. Like he had one yeah. level and it was, it was just very, very loud. Whereas think about the how many times, I don't know that anybody is a better actor, a better comedic actor at screaming. Uh, I mean, the, you are a toy. There's yeah. no crying in baseball. Yeah. Hooch. You know, all of these um, big. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very specific thing. You know, there aren't a lot of people who can uh, who can do it as well as he can. He is. And that sarcastic yelling sort of thing is not that's not just like, oh, the nicest guy. Like he got the nicest guy rep for being nice. But his on-screen perform persona is not always a nice guy. You know, you like him. You almost always like him. Well, this is a perfect um, segue into the three top picks section of the show, and we could oh, talk, yeah. we could talk to you all day, and may may want to uh, request another episode so we can get more in depth sure, in yeah. your other projects. But to wrap this one up, let's do our three top picks. Um, and today's three top picks, in honor of the Dead Eyes podcast, <laughs> is three top Tom Hanks roles. Okay, now um, Brad and I don't talk about this; we don't ever share them. And I kind of concentrated on roles. I have favorite Tom Hanks movies, and often the roles go along with that. But I really uh, just concentrated on things and reasons why I like the roles. So here's how we do it, Connor. We'll go around. You do one at a time. We'll let you go first. And we cheat because we give ourselves these impossible categories that are, you know, hard to nail down to three. So we do honorable mentions and that kind of thing. So... Yeah. Um, let's take it away, and uh, you give us your first selection as a three top roles for Tom Hanks. Yeah, uh, and this one's easy for me because I have a, I have an instant favorite, which is uh, uh, his role in A League of Their Own, oh. which I think is the perfect Tom Hanks part. Yeah. Um, he's funny. He's dramatic. He yells. Um, he basically does all the things that you want Tom Hanks to do in a movie. He even pees. Um, yeah. You know, he pees, you know, he pees. That's, yeah. a, that's a good uh, pee. <laughs> you know, there, yeah. There's that yeah. trope of Tom Hanks is one of the actors who pees in a lot of movies. <laughs> and I think he does th- that role is checks so many boxes. Cause it does all the things that, um, are the kind of acting that he won awards for. But he also does the things that we liked about him in his early, like, 80s movies. He yes. also has that rhythm of being funny and sarcastic. And um, and there's a looseness to the performance, but there's also a darkness to the performance. It's not a, it's not a lighthearted role. This is a washed-up, 
uh, coach yeah. who is um, who has seen better days. He's a flawed I, I character, definitely flawed character. It's a, he's mean sometimes. Yeah. You know, I mean the. The, the there's no crying in baseball is such a mean it's yeah. such a mean line because he dresses her down in front of everybody yeah. the whole stadium yeah. yeah yeah but it also has that thing where you you end up liking him well it is what I, we doubled on that and I knew we would on some of these so no harm no foul I I agree wow. it's not only one of my favorite roles but it's one of my favorite movies. Um, and for all the reasons you said as far as the role, and what a quotable movie. Brad and I, I mean, my this family, is, we quote that movie all the time. That's good advice. Yeah. Don't, avoid the clap. <laughs> avoid Jimmy the clap. Dugan. Jimmy Dugan. That's good I, advice. It is a quote machine. I yeah, mean, almost, is. you can't go two or three minutes in that movie, and there's not something yeah. that just, it's just fun to pop out every now and then. Yeah, yeah I love that. Great, great choice. Uh, great way to, to kick it off. So I – I did intentionally stay away from what I will call the iconic Tom Hanks roles just because they're so obvious, and that being like Forrest Gump and Captain Miller and Saving Private Ryan and even Woody and Toy Story. You know, I think uh, those are those are certainly things that Tom is iconic for. Tom, like I know him personally. Yeah. Um, so I'm going back to some things that I thought were fun, and you mentioned you mentioned the era, uh, Connor. My first one is. Rick Gasco, the bus driver in Bachelor Party, 1984. <laughs> now, there's a reason I have a, an affinity for this one is that I put myself through college driving a school bus. So I just, you I just immediately yeah. was drawn when I saw that movie. I was immediately drawn to that character. And I think he even had the little hula girl up on the, da- you know, the dashboard where the door, door handle was and stuff. And uh-huh. he was, he, to his kids, he was a cool bus driver. You know, and being a college student, I was a cool bus driver. My kids liked me. You know, uh-huh. I was tolerant. I uh, I was safe, but I was tolerant. And uh, so I kind of related to to Rick. And uh, and I thought it was a funny movie. And he, that was when you know he was in the in the uh, just you know the his powerhouse as far as comedy. And, he made uh, splash. Com- he made yeah. splash that same year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so. Uh, I'm going to confess something to you, which is it's Bachelor Party, even though I own it, it's one of the few Tom Hanks movies I still haven't watched. <gasps> I've, nev- I've never seen it because when it came out, it looked it was not a movie I would have been allowed oh, to okay. see. Because it was a, it's a sex comedy, you know, right? Yeah, but so, so here's the thing. It's not yeah. a great movie. Please don't mistake my... <laughs> I am not endorsing this as a great movie. But it was yeah. a fun Tom Hanks role for me, and so that's why I put it on my list. Yeah, there were no Academy Awards yeah, no, uh, sp- no. spread it around on, yeah, on that it's one. It's a raunchy, but, it's a sophomoric raunchy uh, romp. It's, and so. I'm sure it's one of those, like a lot of movies that I like in a certain era, there's almost guaranteed there's at least one line in that movie that if you watch it now, you'll be like, oh no. You know, there's like, oh yeah. There's almost, it's, everything I liked as a kid, when I revisit it, there's almost always something where I'm like, oh, I can't believe yeah. that that was considered acceptable. And oh, not yeah. in a good way. Not, <laughs> no, not no, like no. in a, not like in a, oh, they were way ahead of their time, but it's something where it's like, Oh, like a Michael J. Fox movie that has like something that's like casually like hateful, yeah, but in an eighties sort of way. Yeah, yeah, I that Bachelor Party. I've seen. Well, you should watch it just to say you've seen it. I mean, you know, it may not well, be your cup of at tea. This but point, uh... at, at this point, I'm sort of almost saving it because that and the Man with One Red Shoe are the two early Hanks movies that part of me likes still having them to look forward to in yeah. a weird way. Yeah, like. 
I I will be sad when I do eventually watch it, and then I'm out of like vintage Hanks. Yeah, um, I get it. Because like Volunteers and uh, the I'm trying to think what else from that era, but like that whole sort of early '80s era of Tom Hanks yeah. has such a specific nostalgic feeling for me because. Even I remember watching Splash and thinking like that felt very adult to me at the age I saw it. Like I I'm still sure think the did. part where where he is naked, cupping his genitals and saying, "I am not a fish," like that was to me at the age I saw it. I was like, "This is a movie for adults." Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I'm still like, I I can't believe I didn't get around to watching it during the pandemic because I would have thought while I was doing this podcast, I would have hit that, but I, there are so many obscure Tom Hanks things that I have seen, yet I still haven't seen Bachelor Party. Well, it's something to look forward to, so <laughs> there you I'm, go. I'm literally looking at the Blu-ray that I have of it, that right next to my DVD of The Man with One Red Shoe. <laughs> I should do a double feature. I should <laughs> there watch you both go. of these. All right, Doctor Jones, what do you got? All right, um, I did not. Uh, I did not pick uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. I just thought you'd like to know. Uh, right. TCM TCM did an entire podcast about Bonfire of the Vanities. Ooh, that was a great podcast. Uh, yeah, did you? Wasn't that good? I, anything ah. TCM does, I love their their podcast. I think they're very well done. But yeah, uh, I had um, read the, I had read the book, and what I loved about that was that the podcast doesn't just duplicate. It's not just an audio version of the book. It's going back to like the primary sources and hearing their like current like it, it's just so um it's a good like supplement to them. Yeah, it is. Well I didn't pick it, but I I just because <laughs> it, it's you wouldn't admit, Connor, it's on many uh worst movies ever made lists. I don't know. Well, it didn't make money. I mean it was it was it was certainly one of the biggest bombs for the money that they spent on it, but I think for it was the hype, also certainly like, it was it was way oh, overhyped. Way hyped. Yeah. yeah. Well so the book was so huge, yeah. you know. Yeah. So. I think it, it cost a lot. People loved the book and I think people felt um, betrayed by the the movie not giving them the same feeling that the book gave them. Yeah, yeah. Thing well, like, and that happens. Happens a lot. That yeah, happens a lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my first one's actually Apollo thirteen, uh, where oh, he plays nice. Jim Lovell. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought it was a great ensemble cast. Um, I am somewhat claustrophobic, so watching that film still bothers me that yeah. you've got three grown men uh, basically floating around in space and in trouble. And I thought – I really thought that the performances by Bacon and Paxton were good. Um uh, Gary Sinise was good on the ground, and I just I yeah. I really thought that that was a just a really strong uh, acting because I a lot you know a lot of those films that that Tom makes you tend to want to put yourself in that position and how would I act and he was just cool he had a job to do he had to get him home and yeah. I just I just thought it was just a really good uh, a good performance and a, a really nice ensemble work uh, in that in that film. So that it's Apollo a, 13 also, is my first one. It's also a great example of acting. That's not flashy acting. It's very unassuming, great acting. It's, yeah. it's acting that just as you, you just sort of, you almost don't even think of the acting because it just feels like people being natural. It just seems like I once saw that. I, I saw it obviously when it came out of the theater, but I also saw that once on an airplane. I remember it, when it was, Back when you couldn't pick what you're watching right. on the screen, it was yeah. just like this yeah. is the movie. This- <laughs> and I just remember thinking, this is a terrible movie to show on an airplane not- because no yeah. I guarantee whoever so- made this airplane didn't work as hard as NASA does. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I thought Ed Harris was great in that movie. He too, was as the uh, mission control guy. You know. Yeah, let's let's yeah. go on our let's go on our cabin on this cruise and watch the Poseidon Adventure. Oh, that's a really good yeah. idea. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Titanic. Yeah. So All right, right. You're, so you're you're up, up again, again Connor. Connor. What's the second second one? Um, second one, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for a recent one that is maybe a controversial choice, but I'm gonna defend it, which is uh, Elvis. Um. Oh. He got a Razzie Award for this, and he got some bad reviews for it. But I think that I think it's a brilliant performance in a in a really terrific movie. And I'm not someone I went into it not knowing whether I would enjoy it because I haven't really been into any Baz Luhrmann films, and I kind of thought going into this that this film could be kind of a nightmare. And in some ways, I mean, as a pure biography of Elvis, it. It just does whatever it wants. It just makes up stuff left, right, and center. But including his whole performance. Like, Tom Hanks is a really talented mimic. He can do a... a, a if you look at a video of Colonel Tom Parker yeah. and how he actually talked, the voice that Tom Hanks does in that movie is a choice. Like, he knows how to sound like the real Colonel Tom Parker, but this is like a, a European fairy tale goblin version of... Colonel Tom Parker. Yeah. And there is a middle section in that, in this movie that is all about how he wants Elvis to sing uh, Christmas songs on TV. And I, I refer to it as the middle hour of the movie because I, I was laughing so hard at how it struck me as so funny that you have this character dressed in a Christmas sweater who's saying like, you will pay. Here comes Santa Claus. And, <laughs> And I was like, this movie is crazy. Like, the movie feels like a trailer, first of all. Like, you start watching, and the pace yeah. of it is like a trailer. And then about five minutes in, you realize, like, the whole movie is going to go at this pace. And his performance, which I have a thing about, like, there's a certain kind of performance that will get a bad review. And it's because the actor was doing something. They were trying one thing and achieving another. The performance Tom Hanks gives in Elvis it's not a mistake. It's not an accident. He didn't accidentally do the voice wrong. They chose to make this character the way he is. And it's part of what makes it's such a bonkers movie. Yeah. It's part of the, it's almost like if the real Colonel Tom Parker were going to make an Elvis movie right now, it might be a choice that he would make. It's like a carny choice to like, let's make the Colonel kind of like rumble stiltskin or something. Yeah, he is. I was, I was going to say he's almost like a troll, like a troll under a bridge. Yeah. yeah. And it is like he's like the snowman and the showman. Yeah. yeah. Similar, you and I. It is part of the continuum of David S. Pumpkins. Like there's a crazy side to Tom Hanks that takes big swings sometimes. Yeah. I yeah. think I, I don't want to blow through your other choices, but like the Lady Killers is another example of that yeah. where like. Tom Hanks can get crazy. Oh, yeah. And, and, he, and I think he has fun doing that. I, I, I kind of get that he has having, fun doing it. I that. think that's what makes him great. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. He's ha I saw people who were like, Elvis is great except for this performance. I'm like, you're not understanding that no. that is like, you like this crazy movie, but you don't like the crazy goblin at the center of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just like Keith, him going around saying, you, you know what? Will perform. Here comes Santa Claus. It's the hard that makes it great. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. so it wasn't hard. Everybody would do it. It wasn't hard. Everybody yeah. would do My it. favorite quote. And I kind of feel like sometimes actors have to kind of take one for the team. And I think that 
the colonel and Elvis is sort of like this crazy thing that sort of draws the fire for how crazy the rest of the movie is. I agree. I, I'm, I'm the same way you are. I, I think the reason you think it's like a, the, the whole movie's like a trailer is because it is a Boz Lerman film and that's the way he, he directs films. But I thought Hanks was great in it. I, I'm, the young, the young kid, Austin Butler was amazing. Yeah. But, uh, I, Hanks was uncom- he was so good he was uncomfortable to watch and that's to me that's yeah. a solid performance yeah. when it really yeah. kind of makes you feel like you have to go wash your hands after you've seen him on screen mm-hmm. the colonel was yeah, uncomfortable to go take a shower um what you got next my Skip? second one my second one is um is big okay. Josh Baskin and the reason is as i understand it he did a lot of this stuff came up with a lot of stuff on his own but the way he embodied it, the child the young person as an adult, you know, a child in an adult's body and the relationship he had with his buddy, his young friend that, you know, was trying to get him back to normal. And, you know, the, the girl comes over and he's, she, she goes, can I sleep over? And he goes, yeah, I get the top bunk. You know? <laughs> I get a, I get on top. <laughs> and, and he's, and he's, or he's eating the corn on the little miniature corn on the cob at the party or eating caviar and puts uh, it in his mouth. And- scrapes it off of his stuff. I mean, I don't know how much of that stuff was written in the script or how much he came up with, but it was just a phenomenal performance. It was I good. Thought. It was a good. Um, it was a very, I, very good. And I think you could have done so many things that would have been considered considered shtick, you know, just yeah. um, maybe throwaway things or, or uh, wrote um, stereotypical things, and I think he went way beyond that and was very creative with it. Yeah, it's also, I remember when that movie came out after there had been a series of sort of, like, father-son switching movies. Yeah, and there was like, a whole bunch of them, Freaky Fridays like and all Versa those kind of things. Yeah. And, like, Father Like Son. Yeah. And and I remember when the trailer for Big came out, almost feeling sorry for it, because I'm like, that looks good. But, like, people were, it was already a joke at that point that that genre was, like, played out. Like, that Freaky Friday thing had sort of, like, yeah. none of them had been big hits. Been yeah. there, done that, yeah. And it's a great example of how, like, execution is everything because, like, it didn't matter that those other movies existed because Big was just so good. Yeah, yeah. I, I... Inter- I, I don't even compare I it to watch- those. You know, I really don't. I think yeah. it's in a different genre. It's it's in a different it class. Absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. It also, I watched recently. There's a there's a, a version of the movie like an extended cut, and I can't find any information because it doesn't say it's a director's cut. It's just a longer cut of the movie that I hadn't seen. That's on disc. You can huh. you can get it. And the movie's like it's like a solid like thirty or forty minutes longer. Oh wow! Wow. Yeah. And what that'd be kind of interesting. Is, yeah. it, it really is interesting that it, it, it's it's not the ideal version of it, but there's a bunch of good scenes in it that are really uh, it, it's intriguing to see just more of yeah. a movie you already yeah. like. Um, that thing you do also has like a director's extended cut that I actually highly recommend. I have um, seen that. That is excellent. I it, agree. It, it is like yeah. it is like if you like the movie, you just get more of what you like in yeah. the movie. You yeah. Know? yeah. But the big one is interesting because. I'll ask you both a question, um, whether or not the, how many parents does Josh Baskin have in big? Well, we know he has a mom. I don't know that uh, if you're getting that, I don't know that we ever see a father. I don't know. The, yeah. I don't know that we see dad. We do see, we, we do see a father. We oh, wait, he picks him up or something, doesn't he? Well, you barely register him in the original version. There's basically like all of his big scenes are with his mom alone in the house basically right yeah when they go to the carnival he gets in line and 
uh, the girl he has a question says, Josh, aren't, th- aren't those your parents? And then he cuts over and you see a mother and a father and That's they like right. wave at him. Yeah, they wave at him. Yeah. Yep. And when he writes letters home, he writes them to mom and dad. Well, I'm looking at IMDb and, and there is a Mr. Baskin in there. So, But I was like, wait a second. He, she's a single mom. I had no memory of the dad. I, I didn't In either. the longer version, there's just a couple more scenes that really establish there is a dad there. Yeah. Um. But it's weird because the movie works so well, despite the fact that it's actually kind of a weird flaw in the making of the movie. That you kind of nobody notices the dad. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I went twenty years before I realized there was a dad in the movie. <laughs> I kind um, of always just assumed it, but I, I, I know what you're it, saying. It, you it don't feel like him. she's a it's because you know he never interacts with the dad, really, yeah. so you, yeah. it feels like there's just the mom. Yeah. So I got my my next one. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit an honorable mention really quick and a uh, shameless plug. Uh, first of all, one one of my absolute favorite movies. It's kind of one of those, you know, if it's on, I'll watch it, regardless of how many times I've watched it. A lot of Tom Hanks movies are like that for me. That thing you do. Oh and, yeah. And gosh. and here's the deal, Connor. If you have uh, Holmes Osborne's number, Keith and I mm-hmm. will go yeah. to Kansas City and we'll sit down with him. Yeah. We would love to interview him. It'd be a. We want to go to Kansas City and do some stuff anyway, but we'd love to sit down with him. So okay, for my number two, I think was was, was truly again. It's kind of the same as the Apollo thirteen. If you you put yourself in this place of what would I do, Castaway. Uh, it's just it, it's just one of the most phenomenal acting experiences and you know you can't help but what would i do how long would i last on a on a desert island with cut up feet and not being able to eat and talking to to a volleyball <laughs> and an abscess tooth and abscess oh, oh that's such, yeah, oh, that's that, so that, painful my that God. one's hard to watch doing dentistry oh. with it with an ice skate is if not had, recommended my dental history at, it's at a, that's any a hard time. one to watch so that was 2000 he was also a producer on that film and yeah. here here's the thing and Keith and I have talked about this movie I think once before the thing about this movie is I stop watching it when he gets home because oh no you, you know, no wait 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 <laughs> I know but here here is if you put yourself in the place that you get home and everybody else in the world has moved on and they think you're dead and they've gone on and gotten married and kids have grown up and I think this is one of the most painful things it is painful. that you could ever have as a human being. It is painful. There's no doubt about it. It's I, hard to I watch. I had it on my honorable mention. I'll jump back in. I, um, we'll go to you next, Connor, but I did have it on an honorable mention list also. And for for a couple of reasons. First of all, he's by himself most of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's a, he's he's got nobody to work off of. He's got no other character. So it's a solo performance for most of the movie. Not a lot of dialogue either. And really. I gotta, I'm going to come clean on this one. I didn't like Castaway the first time I saw it. I, did, I, I was not a Castaway fan. It took me two or three times, which I don't know why I went back and watched it if I didn't like it the first time. But for some reason, I was either forced to or I did. The more I watch that movie, the more I fall in love with it. It's so, a great, um, yeah. it's a great film. Yeah, it is. I and I, I say this like when I because when I was fired by Tom Hanks, he was he had just finished filming that movie, so he was at his like totally emaciated like skinny wow. self at the end of that. He lost yeah. a bunch he lost of weight. A bunch of weight. Yeah, and so when, by the time that came out in the theater, that was the first movie that I, the first Tom Hanks movie I saw. Because basically, one thing about my dead eyes like experience is that 
you were asking how did the story feel at a certain point. There was a period early on where I was sort of like upset about it and it was a serious story. And then later it became like a funny anecdote and that's what evolved it into a podcast story. Castaway came out right in the heart of the period where I was like, you know, mad about the whole idea of Tom Hanks because Tom Hanks doesn't like me. Like (laughs) it's just upsetting. I went to Castaway. I think I bought a ticket for a different movie. I went into a multiplex and I was like, I can't bring myself. I'm too upset. I'm going to, I I paid for a different movie and then walked into Castaway because I was just on principle. I was like, I can't, I can't be a Tom Hanks fan anymore, but I want to see this movie. Let's see this movie. And, and then I was like watching the movie. I'm like, I can't stay mad. This guy's my yeah, favorite. Like, yeah, I can't yeah. do it. And then he like, does, the and then so he does good. Yeah. Then he does something like that. And you're yeah. like, Oh, well, okay. Well, the, the also, other thing about I also on the, on the last time I, the most recent time I watched it, I had like, two thoughts. One was that parts of that movie are a horror film. Like, Oh yeah. The, the plane crash and the part where he's just in the ocean after that. There's a shot in that that's one of the scariest things I've ever seen in a movie. It's like on an existential level. The ocean has never been scarier to me in a movie than the night of the plane crash when he's just in the water. The other thing that I realized is that if you wanted to in this era, because sometimes people are like, it's kind of a long movie. This is a long movie. In this era where people binge watch TV shows, the movie actually would be a perfect four episode limited series. Yeah. Yeah. Because you could break it up. Episode, yeah. Episode one ends with the plane crash. Episode two is him figuring out the Island. Episode three is the time. Ju- it, and, and episode two ends with the, uh, the dental procedure. Cause then you have the time jump where suddenly he has a beard and he has learned to live on the Island. And episode three ends with the big ocean liner rescuing him. And then episode four gets to be its own space where it's like back at home because sometimes that feels like it's a long addendum after you've been through a lot of movie, but there's a part of it. If it's the four, if you watch that movie over four nights, it gives each chapter like time to really sink in. And it really does justice to that epilogue part because it sort of gets its own little space to live. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. You're up again. You get your last one here. Unless you got any honorable one, mentions. Course, honorable mentions. I mean, so it's all honorable mentions. I know. Always. I know. Toy There's Story too many. films, that thing you do. Um, an honorable mention I'll mention in case we haven't seen it, uh, it was, would be Cloud Atlas, um, which is a crazy film, but it's part of that, that crazy thing that I like. It's a very ambitious, not everything about it works, but I fell in love with this movie watching it because it's, it's so, it's doing so many things at once. I have not seen Cloud but, Atlas yet. It is a it is a it. crazy film that I highly recommend just because it's so ambitious. He plays a bunch of different roles and it's I, I just love it. I, I, I was expecting going into it that I would not like it because I'd heard mixed things. And about an hour into it, I was like, I, I love this movie. I, I was just like bowled over by it. But my third pick is going to be Captain Phillips. Um, and very specifically for end of that movie we're going to say the same where thing he's having the the, ment- the the physical the medical exam exactly it's you know I, I i'm sometimes skeptical of like the kind of acting that wins awards can sometimes be showboaty it can sometimes be um you know you can see people the ambition behind the performance sort of you know, we're trying to impress 
Um, he should have won an award for Captain Phillips. Yep. It is some of the most, I, I get chills watching that scene. It is so authentic that, um, I, I kind of can't watch that scene without crying and without getting like the actual like goosebumps I agree. watching it because the, I, it, it's just, I wrote it's, down it's this, amazing. I, I wrote down the exact same thing, Connor. It's, it's kind of uh, ironic that we would have no, no dialogue. It's all in the face, all in the eyes, all in the body. And I actually am, when I saw the scene originally, I don't know about you, I was curious as to who the actress was that played the medic because she was phenomenal as the, yeah. as the, um, oh, I don't even know what the word is. You know, she, she didn't, she didn't overdo anything, but she was, she was part of it, but she wasn't part of it. She was just the perfect yeah. foil. That's the word I'm looking for. She was the perfect foil for what he was doing. And yeah, I had the same thing it, and it's reminiscent. I wasn't even going to say it because I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema is in Forrest Gump when he learns that little Forrest is his son and he asks, mm-hmm. and, and when he, when she tells him that, before he says anything, that that look in his eyes, and you can, you know, there's a thousand words of dialogue going through his brain, and you know what every one of them is, and it's the same thing with Captain Phillips, and he has yeah. such a great ability to do that, to say so much without saying a thing, and uh, a great great choice. Yeah. All right, boys. So we, sure doubled, whether, we doubled on that one. You doubled on that one, but I, 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 I wasn't sure whether whether you were leading up to saying this, but the the person in the scene who's doing the medical exam uh, with him is a non actor. They were an actual Navy I, medic. I doing... wondered that. I, I, in fact, I would have bet it when I saw it. I was like, I don't think that person was an actress. I think that person was a real naval medic. I she wondered that. So doing, they just said, do your actual procedure, what you would Phenomenal. do with the patient if they've been through this. It really is. Great like, choice. I, I sometimes feel like, you know, we see things in movies and, and I feel like there are things in movies where someone gets shot in the arm and they kind of like, and then they kind of like brush it off. Yeah. And you often don't see conveyed how scary things really are in the real, when they happen for real. Yeah. yeah. And seeing a character process everything that's happened to him in, the, in this experience it's just not something that we're shown that often in yeah, movies. Yeah. Like when, when someone is that traumatized, scene. Yeah, amazing. Scene. It, I, I've never seen anything quite like it in a movie. And it really, I agree. the fact that that movie, that that performance exists in the same actor who, who, who is David S. Pumpkins tells you everything you need to know about, um, you know, what Tom Hanks is capable of as an actor, that he can be that funny, but also, be that accurate a representation of real human suffering and pain. Yeah. Well, and that, that, since, since you guys have doubled on a couple of mine, I will put my last honorable mention out there and that's, uh, Victor in terminal. I thought he was phenomenal in terminal. Um, and, uh, not, not only because of the accent or any of that, but again, the human condition, how he plays the human condition and surviving in an environment that, most of us would not know what to do and, you know, finely written character, but just uh, expertly performed. So good ones, boys. That's it. My last one, my, my last honorable mention would be uh, a sort of a sentimental, um, <laughs> just kind of a sentimental fun movie because I thought the two of them play again, the two, the two actors played together so well. Saving Mr. Banks. 
I thought Emma Thompson was fantastic as uh, Pam Travers. And watching her torment him, I mean, just torment. Walt Disney trying to get, yeah. get get Mary Poppins made, I thought was great. And speaking of of torment, uh, my last one is Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, and watching him throughout this movie get so frustrated and and because he gets foiled so many times, and yet at, towards the end there, he's got. He, he's he, he can't help but not have some admiration for this kid because oh, he's, he's right. Like, yeah. This guy yeah. is smart, and I'm going to catch him. I know I'm going to catch him, but he almost has some empathy. You know, yeah. towards the end, yeah. there's like the two two the two great boxers getting yeah. together at the very end, yeah. and you know, I got you. And and the fact that it's a true story, I think really kind of brings it home too that yeah you know is so that that was that was my well, last that was one. a fun exercise again we could talk to i could talk tom <laughs> hanks movies for hours hey connor connor real yeah. quick what did you what did you just rap can you tell us well the most recent thing that i filmed was the mean girls musical oh very good there was some Mean Girls the movie, and then they made a Broadway musical out of it right. and now they've made a, a movie, movie of the, the broadway the musical, musical yeah. and i I'm in it. John Hamm is in it. We did not interact, even though we there was the one day he filmed was also a day that I was filming, but different parts of the building, different parts of the day. I believe John and I both play teachers. But we'll keep our eyes out for that. And and here's the other thing, uh, Bobby Vance. Any we're going to post a lot of the links to things that you can see Connor in and things that he mm-hmm. has done. Uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel is one of them. He popped up on a I think it was season two in that and did a great job in that. Orange is the New Black. You were in some episodes of that. So he's been in a lot of stuff out there. So Connor Ratliff, thank you very much for joining us today. And we will have to do this again. Uh, too many good stories to to get all in one episode. So thanks so much for having me. You're you welcome. Bet. Let us know when you're back in town. We would love to get together with you. All right. Yeah. All right. We'll tell mom and dad hi the next yes, time we, we see him. We will. All right. Uh-huh. Very good. Uh-huh. All right, Bobby Vance. Thanks for joining us as always. And uh, Dr. Jones. Hey. Cheers. cheers. We like that too. Is produced as a labor of love for the enjoyment of Bon Vivants everywhere. To get information about our bottles and links to our guests, go to our website, welikethatpodcast.com. Tune in to new episodes by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, and other popular streaming apps. Please remember to rate, review, and share. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at We Like That Podcast. So everybody, hey, remember the numbers. One bottle, two good friends, and three top picks because... We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too.